All right, this morning I'm reading from Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 10. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders and allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more in number. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt pity for him. This must be one of the Hebrew, ch Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess re replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Well, is anybody missing the tent this morning? <laughs> I got up so grateful this morning for our church building and for central heat. So... In our house, we're reading a lot of books. You guys know that. We're reading a lot of these kids' books. And one of the series of books that we love is, is the Maisie books. And I don't know if you guys have come across these before. Probably not. But it's, Maisie is a mouse, and she has all these little friends, and they do stuff together. And so there's a book called Maisie Goes to a Surprise Birthday Party. Kind of a spoiler. But you get into the middle of the book, and what happens is Maisie wakes up, and it's her birthday. And she makes her favorite meal and puts on her favorite clothes. And she gets a letter in the mail from one of her friends that says, come over to my house immediately. So she goes over to the house. And as you're reading this, what, what, what the page says is she gets there and the lights are out, but the door is open. And so, you know, Davey reading along is like, oh, no. You know, like what could be going on at Charlie's house? And then you turn the page, and of course you, because you know what's coming in this book, because you've read the title and you've read it 500 times at this point, are like, surprise, and all the friends jump out. But, but to her, literally every time, it is a surprise. Because in what other circumstance would it be a good thing that the house is dark, there's nobody there, there's no movement, and the door is cracked open? And you, I, I think about the phenomenon of reading that book, it's, it's good the first time, and then it loses some of its significance as you go, but for somebody who is 
constantly surprised. You ride the whole roller coaster of the book every time you read it. The down, maybe her birthday's not going to be that great. Maybe the house is dark because something bad happened. All the way up to the surprise of there was a plan all along and a surprise for her. And I wish in some way we could see ourselves in that position as we begin the book of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus is so familiar to us that we lose the sheer sense of wonder at what God does in this book, right? So the book does open the exact same way, and it does have a title that gives away just as much as Maisie goes to a birthday party. Exodus means they're going to be coming out of Egypt. But when you open the book, the lights are off, the door is open. The Hebrew people have been in Egypt now for 400 years, and they are being oppressed. They have got a new pharaoh who doesn't have their best interest in mind. He is concerned with oppressing these people. And by chapter 2, what you realize is the door is just slightly cracked for God to do something. So this morning as we dive in, we started the book last week and it was kind of an overview, but this week we're really going to dive in to the first part of this book and I want you to see four things this morning for the first time all over again maybe. The reality of the suffering of the people of Israel, the power of their faith, the promise of new life, and the surprise of God's deliverance. The reality of their suffering, the power of their faith, the promise of new life, and the surprise of God's deliverance. So there's a way to read Bible stories that elevates the characters and the circumstances in a way that detaches them from reality. So you think about stories like David or Abraham or the apostles in the New Testament, and because we read them in kind of this high gloss, separated from reality, almost like a movie kind of way, we miss that these were real people suffering real outcomes in history. And the real outcome that these people were suffering in Egypt was a very, very bad existence. It's it's almost like sometimes we get to the surprise of the story so quickly that we forget that there was real suffering in the beginning. And this is important because in our lives, when we don't have the full plot laid out, we sometimes think that our suffering is different than what the people in the Bible had. But you know, the people in Egypt at this point, the Israelites, they didn't have any assurance that God was going to do something amazing in their midst. Instead, what they had was a new king. While they had once been in power with Joseph, he had died, and over the years, they had settled into an area and become very populous. And the new king realizes that this is a major threat to Egypt. Because if a foreign army were to come in and attack Egypt, who's to say that this almost a million Israelites don't form an army of their own to overthrow the Egyptian pharaoh. So this pharaoh makes a real-world geopolitical decision to say, I've got to do something about this population of Israelites. And what he does is he decides to oppress them with hard labor and get rid of their male children. And, and, and as if we were to think that this is just an ancient biblical times thing, this is very similar to things that happen in our own world Today, you know, some of the headlines right now are a consequence of China's one-child policy in the previous generation. Their their birth replacement rate is so low now that they can't sustain their population. 
This is something that dictators then would do and dictators now would do. It's something very similar that's happening to the Uyghurs in the western portion of China today. Pharaoh was a leader very similar to people all throughout history who have acted out of an imminent threat. The X factor in this story, though, is God seems to be doing nothing. For hundreds of years, you go from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and God is speaking and directing and moving the events of history to silence for hundreds of years, almost as if God is sleeping or God is absent or everything that happened in the past with those people maybe was kind of a myth in history. Being as cold as it was this morning, I was thinking about sleeping versus hibernating. And hibernating that animals do in the winter is a way of survival, right? So bears, for example, I thought this was a fascinating statistic. Bears, when they hibernate, their heart rate will drop to eight beats per minute. They will breathe one time per minute, which would give you the sense if you came upon a hibernating bear that it actually was dead. But it was preparing for what comes next. See, see, the point of hibernating is not reactive, it's proactive. The reason animals hibernate is so that they can survive and be ready for the next season. And I think it would be more proper for us to say that in this story, God, for his own purposes that we'll see later in the book, has not been sleeping, he hasn't gone away, he's in some sense almost hibernating, waiting for the right moment to deliver his people. And this goes down to one of the deepest questions for us. Why does God wait so long to deliver his people? You know, why, when God could have snapped his fingers and made the Egyptians disappear and the Israelites move into that area, does God wait hundreds of years with real suffering and real people dying to do something? See, this, this is the crux of the entire Exodus story is why does God do things when God decides to do them. And I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis this week, researching for this podcast series we're going to do in the new year. And in The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis takes an early attempt to deal with the problem of pain and suffering. You know, C.S. Lewis, he, he lived through some profound suffering in his life. And by the time he got into his 30s and 40s, he was wondering about how a good God could allow evil to go on for so long. And in The Problem of Pain, one of the first books that he was known for, here's what he says. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, one of the things that God is doing at this point with the Israelites is he is giving them the opportunity for faith, to trust in God in their sufferings, to become the kind of people that they'll need to be to come into the promised land and worship and serve him there. And so what I want you to see in this first part is, even though we're going to spend most of our time talking about the deliverance of God, the deliverance of God is in the seedbed 
of intense longing and suffering. And in suffering, as C.S. Lewis says, is where we can really see faith begin to take root. So I want you to see the power of their faith. Every great crisis is an opportunity for faith. I think of the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where in every single one of those episodes, you don't see a story like, and -and so-and-so had it great, and he had faith, and everything was wonderful. Every single story in Hebrews 11 is, this person was up against the odds, this person was suffering, this person felt forsaken, but they trusted in God when they couldn't see the end result. The book of Exodus, maybe more than anything else, teaches us the kind of story that God likes to tell. That's what we talked about last week. God loves to tell rescue stories. He loves to tell salvation stories. He loves to tell resurrection stories. The contours of the book of Exodus occur over and over and over again through the Bible. And what I hope we're going to see as our, in our time in Exodus is these stories recur over and over and over again in our lives today. God may be in the middle of telling a rescue story in your life right now. And so we look to these stories for insights and encouragement into how God might be working in ways that we never expected before. The structure of this, these opening stories is actually really interesting. If we step back for a minute and look from kind of a 30,000-foot view at what's happening in these opening chapters of Exodus, here's what happens. You have four little vignettes, little scenes that take place, and they all have the same plot. So there's a problem, there's a solution that somebody proposes, and then there's some kind of outcome that happens. And what we're supposed to learn is we're supposed to watch this done poorly twice and then watch it done well twice, and we're supposed to at the end say, we're going to do it like the people that do it well. So here's what happens. In the first scene, the Israelites become too numerous. They are too powerful. They are too numerous. They're too big a threat. And this is a huge problem for the Pharaoh. So the problem is, what do you do with this mass of Israelites. And so he proposes a solution. Oppress them. That's what you should do. And then we read in verse 12 what the outcome is. So this is right before Alana started reading, but he oppresses them. He sets taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And it says in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So if we're taking notes here, we should say problem People are too numerous. Solution, oppress them. Outcome, exactly the opposite of what he wanted to occur. This happens all over the Bible. You know, the refrain in the book of Acts is, and they were persecuted, and they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. The second thing that happens, after this oppression and after they multiplied, there's too many Israelites. This is a problem for Pharaoh. So what does he do? He proposes a solution. Let's tell the midwives to kill all the baby boys that come from the Israelites. In verse 20 and 21, we see the outcome. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Problem is, they keep growing and thriving. We're going to throttle that, and the outcome is they get bigger and stronger and mightier. This is kind of like Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote kind of stuff. In this one, too, you get get this kind of backhanded line that 
he tells these midwives, go ahead and, and kill the babies that come from the Hebrews. And they answer back. Now, these are Hebrew women. They answer back and they say, we're doing our best, but these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, okay? They give birth before the midwives show up. I mean, so it's, it's not just that his plans were thwarted. It's that they were insulted along the way. Every woman in Egypt was insulted because of Pharaoh's actions, So we see these two plot lines, and then the script begins to flip. The Israelite midwives have a problem. They have been commanded to kill all the babies that they're supposed to deliver. And they propose a solution. Their solution is to obey God rather than man. That's their their proposed solution. They're just not going to do what Pharaoh says to do. And let's see what the outcome is. In this story, what happens is, in verse 21, not only do the Hebrews survive, but because it says the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Right? So the, out, the problem was they've been given this command that they can't carry out. The solution was, we don't know what is going to happen, but we're going to trust God rather than man. And the outcome is, they themselves continued to multiply. They themselves had families. This reminds me of a line of great people of faith in the Bible. Because sometimes we get so caught up in thinking that our solution has to contain the outcome itself. We're the ones who have to drive the outcome. We're the ones that have to produce the results. But in all four of these stories, what you see is the only thing that they can do is trust God. They can't bring about any other solutions. They can't bring about the outcomes. They can't affect the situation. The only thing they can control is whether to obey God or whether to obey man. This reminds me of the story of Daniel and his three friends, if you remember that one where Nebuchadnezzar tells them to bow down and they say, we're not going to bow down. And in fact, they don't say anything other than that. They're not like, we're not going to bow down and we're starting an Occupy Babylon movement to rise up against Nebuchadnezzar and stick it to the man. They say none of that. They say, we're not going to bow down. We may not be able to do anything about us. You can throw us in there. And our God can save us if he wants to, but he might not. We can't control that. We actually cannot control whether or not God saves us. All we can do is control whether or not we trust him or not. So do what you want to do, and our God will do what he wants to do. But we're with him. Same thing in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, you see that Peter and John are dragged in before the Sanhedrin, and they say, stop preaching about Jesus. And you remember what they say? Hey, you guys can decide whether to listen to God or listen to man, but as for us, we cannot help but proclaim what we have seen and heard. We can't control what you do. In fact, they get beaten after this. We can't control what you do. We we don't know what the outcome will be. We don't have a word from the Lord saying, if you'll do this, I'll provide for you. All we have is the choice between believing God and believing man. And they choose to believe God. The fourth situation is the most interesting. The fourth storyline comes in chapter 2, where Moses' mother, which we find out in chapter 6, Moses' mother's name is Jochebed, and she is commanded to throw her son into the Nile. So what was her solution? We know at this point, right? We've got a preview from these previous three. We, We know what she should do. We're rooting for it. She should trust God. So the scene opens in chapter 2, and she has a baby, and she 
uh, after three months, can't keep him quiet anymore, which is kind of an astonishment anyway. Like, you kept this baby quiet for three months? Like, I would love to read what they were doing with babies because that's not been my experience, that you could hide a baby for three months without anybody knowing. But they, they finally get to the point where they're like, somebody's going to notice that we have a baby. So they're stuck with proposing a solution. And what Moses' mother decides to do is to trust in God by following Pharaoh's decree. This is so fantastic. So she takes the baby and she puts him in a little basket and fills it with pitch and actually does exactly what Pharaoh commanded, put the baby in the Nile. But Pharaoh didn't say you couldn't put it in the Nile with something in between the baby and the Nile. And Pharaoh didn't say you couldn't put it in the Nile in such a place that maybe there's a chance that somebody's going to find this baby. What she does is she trusts God with the results. She trusts God. She does what she can. She gives up what she can't control, and God does the rest. Now, this is where we get to the third thing I want you to see, which is the promise of new life. After we see the suffering and after we see faith from the Israelites, we start to see God begin to work in this story. What God does in this story is he starts to bring about new life. So there there are some very interesting clues in this story as to what's about to happen. So if you look at verse 2, I'm going to point out two of them, that God is up to something that's going to bring new life. If you look at verse 2, the woman conceives and bears a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months. This is kind of an odd way to translate this. Some, some different translations put, she sees that he is a healthy child. She sees that he is a good child. But the underlying word here is the word tov, which is a very common Hebrew word. It's not like a special word or a technical term. It's just the word that means good. And in this context, it probably most accurately means he's a healthy boy. He is healthy enough to make it. He's healthy enough to spend the time hiding and caring for. But to a Hebrew ear, because remember, Exodus is the sequel to Genesis. And if you've read Genesis, what will perk your ears up is this is the word that's used seven times in Genesis 1, where God saw that it was good. God saw that it was tov. God created the world, and it was good. God created humanity, and it was very good. Moses' parents create Moses, and all of a sudden we see this word pop up again. It was good. There's a new creation coming in the book of Exodus. The second thing that she does is in verse 3. And again, if you'd read Genesis and, and you're thinking about that, this would pop out to you when she could not hide him anymore... She made for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Okay, there's two words in here that will perk your ears up for what happens in Genesis. The first one, I, I kind of wish they translated it this way in English. The first one, this basket that she push, puts him in, is the word ark. She puts him in an ark and puts him in the river. Okay, so if you're you're sitting here and you're a good Hebrew, you're thinking Genesis 6 through 9, Noah and the ark, this is an act of divine deliverance. This is an act that God is going to do something through him and through the family that comes from him in an evil world. Here we've got Moses riding around in an ark in the water 
God must be up to something in this story. The second thing is she coats it with bitumen. And if you remember, this is a little more obscure, but in Genesis chapter 11, this is the breakthrough that allows them to build the Tower of Babel. They have bricks that they've been able to make hard, and they've got bitumen, which is like concrete, that they have been able to stick them together, and now they can build really impressive structures. Well, Jochebed is a bit of an innovator herself. She takes the bitumen, and instead of using it to build a monument to herself, she builds this little ark for her son. She uses the technology available to her to build something for her son that is a tribute to God. So we start to see the promise of new life brimming over in this story. And and Moses' mother really does what Pharaoh commands, but with a pinch of faith added in. In short, she hides her son where no Egyptian would ever look, in the Nile. This is is the beginning of something that happens in the story that you're going to see here in a second. There's a bit of a surprise in here. Pharaoh's command is, throw all the babies in the Nile. And if you were going to hide a baby, where would be the most inconspicuous place to hide the baby? In the Nile. Moses' mother, really sharp. She hides the baby in the Nile. She obeys the command, but she does it with faith. Sometimes, what we'll see in Exodus and all through the Bible, sometimes you never see what God is going to do with something until you surrender it, until you give it up to God completely. And I think it's almost a brutal way of putting this in this story because the thing that she gives up is a living child, right? None of us would ever consider, if I just said, sometimes you'll never see what God can do with something until you give it up. Many of us would never imagine that that would mean something as significant as a child. But one of the things that this story shows us is if that can be true for Jochebed with her baby, it could be true with you for all kinds of less significant things, See, this story ties in completely to what we saw in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac, and what we're going to see later in the New Testament, that it's through the giving up of a child that brings the salvation of the world. See, it's the giving up of Moses that turns him into the person who can deliver Israel from Egypt. And like God did with his own son, it is the giving up of his son that creates salvation for his people. We see all through the book of Exodus that Moses is a deliverer. He's a preview of Jesus. It's like a little picture of what Jesus is going to do. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see is the surprise of God's deliverance. The surprise of God's deliverance. If you would have gotten a committee of Israelites together and you would have planned what could we do to remedy our situation, they Never in a million years, in the greatest whiteboard session, in in the greatest uninhibited, brainstorming, dream, vision-casting meeting, could you ever have thought that God was going to do what he was going to do in the book of Exodus? This is where the familiarity, it, it hurts us, because if you were to read this for the first time and you were to say, okay, here's the situation, all the babies are supposed to be killed, and this Hebrew baby has been thrown in the Nile like all the rest, And Pharaoh, with his army and his power and everything, is oppressing the people of Israel. And in just a few years' time, they're going to leave Egypt with all the riches of the kingdom and go to the promised land. You would have thought, how could you possibly make that happen? And then if we were to throw in that 
the rest of this story goes this way. The baby is floating in the Nile to the place where Pharaoh's daughter happens to like to bathe in the Nile. And the baby goes up, and, and she happens to be there at that moment and sees the baby and has compassion on the baby. And just at that moment, if that wasn't surprising enough, his sister pops out and says, would you like for me to get somebody who can nurse the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, that would be wonderful. And you know, what's crazy is we actually have contracts from this period for wet nurses. They're called weaning contracts. And what would happen is people would pay, this actually goes all the way up until maybe 150 years ago, that it was very common for people in power to just pay somebody to be a wet nurse for the baby. So this was a common place. We have some of these contracts, and they pay really good money for this to happen. So what happens is his, his, daughter, or, or his sister jumps out to the daughter of Pharaoh and says, you want me to go find a wet nurse? She says, sure. She just goes and gets the baby's mother, who comes back, signs a contract, gets paid to nurse her own baby, bring him up in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord, and send him into Pharaoh's house. Never could have dreamed this up. But here's the other thing. If you had dreamed this up, you could never have orchestrated it. So imagine we did come up with this plan, and we thought this would really, this would be a great plan. How could you possibly make this happen? How could you possibly orchestrate things in this way? See, this is why it's God's kind of story. Have you ever noticed that throughout the Bible, God doesn't really deliver in the obvious ways almost ever? There's almost never a story in the Bible where you're like, it's exactly what I thought was going to happen. There's almost never a time where God does the obvious, practical, pro and con list would dictate this is what you do kind of thing. That's just not the way that God works because God's goals are different than that. God is giving the opportunity for faith. God is telling the story where he is the hero. God is telling a story that highlights our weaknesses and his strength. What he does here is what he does all across the Bible. He takes a little mustard seed of faith and moves a mountain with it. The little mustard seed of faith that there's a problem, the outcome is uncertain, but we will trust in the Lord, and God delivers. There's irony in this story, and I just want to take a little sidebar before we close and, and point this out because it's one of the best places in the Bible to illustrate this point. God loves to tell ironic stories. There's irony all over the Bible, and this is what gives us the surprise when God delivers. And if you look back at your life with, with a good enough look, you'll see all kinds of ways that God does something ironically. And in this story, I'm just going to list for you, there are eight ironic twists that bring about God's outcome. Number one, Pharaoh's instrument of destruction is the instrument of Moses' salvation, the Nile. The Nile is the thing that he thought was going to bring down the people of God. And it turns out that the Nile is the very thing that saves the people of God. Number two, the midwives who were meant to kill the babies are themselves having babies, right? They're supposed to be getting rid of babies, and yet they're multiplying because God's in charge of that, not Pharaoh. Number three, Pharaoh's own daughter undermines his plan. It's actually the household of Pharaoh that undoes the plan of Pharaoh. Number four, one of the babies 
that he let live, which would be Moses' sister, remember, because he, he does all the boys versus all the girls. One of the babies that he lets live saves the baby that he intended to die. Number five, Moses' mom saves her son by following the orders that Pharaoh had given to kill her son. Number six, Moses' mom is paid for the thing that she would do for free, namely nurse her own child. Number seven, Moses becomes the savior of Israel by growing up in Pharaoh's house. Right? He becomes the leader of Israel by being an adopted son of Pharaoh. And number eight, Pharaoh's daughter does for him what he will do for Israel. If you notice the last verse in our passage, when, when she gets Moses back, she calls him Moses. So that's probably not the name that his parents gave him. But she calls him Moses because I have drawn him out from the water. This is, this is a just beautiful irony. She drew him out of the water and named him Moses. And God was going to use him to draw his people out of the water at the Red Sea because his name is Moses. So this, this irony in the Bible, it, it points out to us that we shouldn't be surprised to see this in our own lives. That sometimes the way that God works now is the same that the way that God worked then, using the means that seem like destruction in our life to bring salvation. Using the tip of what feels like the blade of suffering to actually cut out parts of us that are killing us. Sometimes God uses the things in itself that look to spell disaster to bring sudden and surprising victory into our lives. In fact, the greatest irony in the Bible is the cross. The cross is an ironic story where God delivers his people through the death of his son. That his son, Jesus, who was delivered over into the hands of the authorities and put to death by their decree, was the very mechanism that God used to set his people free forever. Right? Think about the ultimate irony in this story is really at the devil's expense where he thinks that by sending humanity into a tailspin apart from God by sinning and rebelling and eating the forbidden fruit and being cast away from the tree of life, that actually that would bring the Savior who would be killed and rise again from the dead and bring God's people back to him where they can eat from the tree of life forever. Jesus defeats death by dying. This is something that only God could think of. Galatians 3.13 puts it in perspective for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. See, this is fantastic. Our story begins in Genesis 12 with a blessing promised through Abraham that through you, all the nations will be blessed. And yet it took Jesus becoming a curse so that we could inherit the blessings of God. So that the Gentiles might receive the blessing of Abraham and that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. This is the kind of story that God loves to tell. In fact, 
This is the kind of story God is still telling in our lives right now. This surprising, ironic, unexpected, the lights are off, but the door is cracked for God to do something. All it takes on our part is faith. We, we actually find ourselves in a fifth vignette over and over and over again. A problem and a solution and an outcome. So the question for us, the application for us is easy. We be like Pharaoh or we be like the Israelites. Will we propose a solution of strength, of power, of will, or will we propose a solution of faith? The outcome is God's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you tell stories in a way that we would never guess. We will never know ahead of time all that you have planned for us. In fact, through Christ, you've said that no eye can see, no mind can fully conceive what you have planned for those who love you. And Father, the space in between is our faith. So Lord, help us this morning to trust you in real difficulty and in real suffering. Father, not to make light of the situations that we're in, but to find you in the depth of suffering and difficulty and to trust that you are working. You are not asleep. You are not distant. You have not fallen down on the job. You are working for life and resurrection in our lives today. Father, we ask now for the strength to put our trust in you when we don't see the outcome that you're working towards. Father, we love to have a secure outcome, but we trust you even when we don't. So, Father, make us like the Israelites, who, given the choice between trusting in man and trusting in you, chose to trust in you. Father, give us faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll celebrate communion this morning, and as we do, we'll come forward and tear off the bread and dip it in the cup. And I've said this many times, but communion, when Jesus instituted communion at the Last Supper, it was this same kind of irony that we see in this story. My body and blood will be sufficient for you to have life. My death will be sufficient for you to live. My strength will be sufficient for you to live. My sacrifice will be significant enough to be for you to be forgiven before God. And so as you come this morning, we're all partaking in the ironic story of God that sinners like us through a perfect son can come into the presence of God forever. So as you come this morning and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, we are proclaiming the death of Jesus over us. So stand and as we continue to worship, welcome to the table of Jesus Christ.